began last week looking at this letter written by the half-brother of Jesus around 44 AD. And at this time, James has sort of emerged as the lead elder among a group of elders that are pastoring the church in Jerusalem. Now, this church is under great persecution and it only gets worse as time goes on, but James is focused on the mission of God's church. He's, he's pastoring a local church, but yet he writes this letter of encouragement to Christians that are scattered all around the Mediterranean Sea because they too are facing trials just like the church was in Jerusalem. And we discovered last Sunday that for Christians, the trials that we go through are proof that the work of sanctification is still going on in our lives. As Pastor Russell said, if you're trusting Jesus for your salvation, you're a construction site. And God is working on you and building you and shaping you into the likeness of his son. And there's no pain-free way to do that. So trials are a refining work of God. About 13 years ago, my wife and I began to notice what we didn't want to notice in our youngest son. And that was a neurological disorder that he still lives with today. And I can tell you that we are not the same people that we were all those years ago. We follow Jesus differently today because of that. We trust in him more today than we did. We think differently about the sovereignty of God. And yes, both of us have a long way to go in our walk with Jesus, but trials are proof that the work of sanctification is still going on in our lives. It may seem odd that this is how James begins his letter of encouragement, but he does. And that's because every trial that we have is designed by a loving God to drive us to cling to him in salvation and of course in sanctification all the way home to eternal life with him. So today we pick up in verse 13. I hope you're there by now because as the word of God pivots from explaining the purpose of trials, we are warned about two related areas of temptation in our passage today. Let's see what the word of God has to say. We begin in verse 13 and we'll go through verse 18. The word of God says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
So what does James do here in these couple of verses? He, he essentially lays out two areas of temptation. And the first area of temptation that we're warned about here is blaming God. Number one on your outline would be blaming God. And that's really what verses 13, 14, and 15 are all about. See, trials and temptations are related, but they're not the same thing. As we think about the passage last Sunday, we saw the word trial used several times and the word test used. And then as we think about our passage today, we see the word temptation used. And even though those are three different English words in the Greek language, which the New Testament was originally written in, all three of those English words come from the same Greek root word. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the point is, James is not starting a new topic here in verse 13. He's continuing the conversation. See, trials and temptation are closely connected. In the Christian life, there is actually a dangerous bridge between a trial and the temptations that follow a trial. This is why we're given a command. Verse 13 is a command that is clearly given. Look at it with me in your Bibles. He says, let no one say, let no one say. That, that's the command in verse 13. And it exists because trials can be a precursor to temptation. James's point here is that every trial in a believer's life can either strengthen that believer if they obey God and remain faithful, or that trial can become an opportunity for sin if they choose to doubt God and give in to the temptation that follows. Temptations and trials are not the same thing, but they are connected by a dangerous bridge. And the command here is don't walk across that bridge and blame God. Let no one say. By the way, if you're not in a trial this morning, praise God, but buckle up. But because as we learned last week, it's not if you face trials, but when you face trials. And it's a blessing that we're commanded here by God to be prepared for the trials that we face. So this is a warning. It's a heads up. It's not a suggestion. It's a command because every trial can potentially lead to temptation. I'll go back to my previous illustration about our son. When my wife and I began to process his diagnosis, uh, we did a lot of research. You look at a lot of stuff. And one of the things that we discovered early on in the process was that the divorce rate of parents of autistic children is over 80%. See, you and I are more vulnerable to temptation when we go through trials. So the command is given here to be a blessing to us. By the way, do you see the commands of God in the scriptures as a blessing or a burden? Because this command, as with all the commands, this command is specifically given to God's people to bless us and warn us to steer clear of a particular accusation. And the accusation is, in the remainder of verse 13, he says, let no one say what? I am being tempted by God. That's the accusation. 
See, in, in the pain of a trial, we can be susceptible to raising our fists to God and saying, you did this to me. Ever been there? I mean, we know that God has the power to do whatever he wills, but when he doesn't act the way we think he should act, we blame him. And we level an accusation at him that we ought not make because it isn't true. You've ever gotten angry at God for a trial that you've had to endure? You understand what this command is all about. There's a command here in scripture that prohibits us from blaming God for the temptation that follows a trial. Because if we do that, it just justifies giving in to that temptation. This is a warning not to accuse God. You know, I can freely admit that I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to TV shows like Extreme Engineering or Modern Marvels or even one of my favorites is Impossible Engineering because the whole building and design process just fascinates me. And, and those shows highlight how engineers create tests to determine if a structure is sound. Y'all know we live in Florida where there are hurricanes. And over time, engineers have, have created tests and figured out which materials and which design construction processes can allow a home to sustain most hurricanes, right? It's a common grace of God that we live in a world where engineers can do that. But how do they do that? They run tests. They create and perform trials. It's the only way we can know with a reasonable certainty what will endure. In a similar way, friends, that's how trials work in a person's life. See, a trial comes from external pressure. And that pressure may be a season of financial difficulty for you or, or, or dealing with a rebellious child. Or it might be failing health or loss of a job or marital conflict. Could be a, a number of anything. But that external pressure of the trial is a test to see how well we do. And that clarifies one of the differences between a trial and a temptation. A trial is designed to build us up. A temptation seeks to trip us up. Understand the difference? It's important. That's the reason the word of God is commanding us not to make the accusation that God is tempting us to sin because he's not. He doesn't do that. A trial, again, is designed to build us up. Temptation seeks to trip us up. And so when James says, let no one say, I'm being tempted by God, he's making it clear that though trials come from God, temptation does not. It's another great example of the mystery of the sovereignty of God, that, that God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over our trials. He's sovereign over temptation. And yes, he is the author of our trials, but he is most certainly not the author of temptation. And if we say he is the author of our temptation, we're actually affirming the antithesis of who God is. That's next in verse 13. Keep reading. 
What does he say? He says, for God cannot be tempted with evil. <laughs> evil is the exact opposite of who God is, right? So the reason we don't blame God for our temptations, because if we did, we would be accusing God of something he's not. God's holy. And there is nothing in God in which evil can even make an appeal to. It just doesn't exist. The statement, God cannot be tempted with evil, is literally translated, God is untemptable. I want you to think about that for a minute. Untemptable. That's not true of you, and it's certainly not true of me. But it's true of God because he is the only one who is intrinsically holy. God is holy to his core. That's why James says God cannot be tempted with evil. Pastor John MacArthur explains it this way. He says, God, by his holy nature, has no capacity for evil or no vulnerability to evil. So friends, in the wake of a trial, when we blame God for our temptations, we are accusing him of being the exact opposite of who he is. But if we do that, we're also accusing him of the exact opposite of what he does. That's the antithesis of what he does. Keep reading in verse 13 and you'll see the antithesis of what he does. It says, and he himself tempts no one. <laughs> so just to make it crystal clear, God is not to blame for our temptation. James says, God tempts no one. Oh, God will certainly bring trials into our life to test us and refine us and make us holy. But he never tempts us to sin. Ever. Because for all those who are in Christ, we're not his enemies. We are, we are now adopted children into his family. And even on a human level, this, we can understand this because it would not make sense for a human parent to tempt their child to fail. Who does that? Certainly not God. That would be the antithesis of what he does. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it makes it clear that no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is what God does when we are tempted, friends. The Lord loves his own to such an extent that not only does he not tempt us, he provides a way of escape. See, trials are from the Lord. Temptation is not. So we can't make the accusation, I'm being tempted by God, because God is not the source of our temptation. So that begs the question, what is the source of our temptation? Well, it goes back to letter E on your outline, the accountability we own Verses 14 and 15 describe the accountability that we own. And what James does in these next couple of verses is he describes a multi-step process that begins when we refuse to take the way of escape that he's already provided. He's talking about temptation here. And so in that moment, where does our temptation come from? We'll take a look at what verse 14 says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
You know, there are several words not to miss in verse 14. Notice how he starts. He begins with each person. That means everyone. There's a universality to temptation. And no one is immune to temptation. No one. And if you think you are immune to temptation, then point two will be helpful to you, I pray. No one is immune to temptation. And don't miss the word own there. He is lured and enticed by his own desires. See, we, we live in a culture that clamors for victimhood. And we ought not buy into that mentality that, that says everything that's wrong in my life is somebody else's fault. It can't be mine because I'm a victim. No, James says that when we give into temptation, we choose to do that. And also don't miss the word desire here. Again, in the, in the Greek language, that word means lust, which is, which is probably why this verse, verse 14, always gets pigeonholed to only apply to sexual sin. And it, and it does apply to sexual sin, but friends, it applies to all sin because lust is simply an intense craving for something or someone. And you know where that comes from? It comes from within us. See, this verse helps us with another distinction between a trial and a temptation. Trials are external. Temptation is internal. We are lured and enticed by our own internal desires. This is the accountability that we have to own. Some of you probably like to fish here in Southwest Florida. And if that's you, let me ask you a question. Can you just put a hook on the end of your line and throw it in the water and catch a fish? You don't have to be a fisherman to know the answer to that question. Can you? No, of course not. What do you need? You need bait. You need a lure. Because fish are clever. They like to sit down in the low spots or up against a bank if there's a steep embankment or underneath the roots of the mangrove trees. And if you're gonna catch something, you're gonna have to lure it out with bait. This is what James is talking about here. Our own desire is the bait that lures us away from the safety of obeying God. Friends, the bait is internal. It's not external. And that's an accountability that each person must own. Our sins cannot be blamed on some genetic marker or some predisposed inherited disposition. Our sin cannot be blamed on other people or difficult life circumstances. My sin comes from my desire and your sin comes from your desire. We must own that. By the way, this is why we need a savior and his name is Jesus. <laughs> we can't just stop sinning. We have an internal problem, a problem of our heart's desire and that can only be fixed by Christ. So James continues in verse 15 with what happens next in the temptation process. Keep reading. He says in verse 15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. Now, 
in describing this temptation process, the word of God is telling us something profound here. It's telling us that sin is not a spontaneous act. No sin is ever spontaneous. Because James is using the metaphor of childbirth, and that's not spontaneous. It takes about nine months, and everybody knows it's coming, right? And it can't be stopped. And James is saying that by this moment in the temptation process, it's too late. Because we've already bought into the lie that what we're being offered is worth it. See, temptation always maximizes the benefits of giving in to our desire, and it always minimizes the consequences of giving in to our desire. And every honest person in this room knows that when desire is conceived and gives birth to sin, the opposite happens. The benefit is less than what we thought, and the consequences are worse than we anticipated. And at this point, the fish has already got a hook set in its mouth, and it's going to be reeled in. So James continues in verse 15. He says, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Death. This is where sin leads every time to death. And for the unbeliever, ultimately, sin does lead to spiritual death, eternal death in hell. But for the believer, even though sin doesn't lead to spiritual death in hell, it will lead to a whole host of devastating earthly consequences. And it can also lead to physical death. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 John 5, the Bible records that there are times that for the sake and the reputation of the gospel, God will call a believer home who is in sin. So the first warning is about blaming God for temptation. And the second warning is about deceiving ourselves. Verses 16, 17, and 18 are about deceiving ourselves. And the word of God bluntly says, beginning in verse 16 here, we all have a self-deception problem. All of us. We can call them blind spots or uh, oversights or flaws or whatever we want to call them. But the truth is, we don't always see ourselves correctly. And you know, self-deception is one of the many reasons that I recommend marriage to young adults. You know, marriage is a good thing. The Bible commends it. But our culture would tell us that, that marriage should be delayed until you do everything that you want to do and you find yourself. And then when you find yourself, you can find your one true love. Right? That's the playbook for human relationships in our culture. And it's idiotic. Because the problem is, even if you do successfully find yourself and find your one true love, you still self-deceived. Because the Bible says we all have that problem. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is a sanctifying work and that God uses your spouse to make you more like Jesus. And, and God uses your spouse to cause you to trust Jesus more. And the reason is because your spouse is seeing things that you don't see, right? It's one of the blessings of marriage. Literally, then our spouses are seeing things that we don't see. Hey, baby, you, you, you know you got something in your teeth? 
Do you know you have a spot on your back? Are you aware that your bald spot is growing? <laughs> right? Literally, they are seeing stuff that we can't see. And that's just the easy stuff. But God uses marriage to point out much bigger matters that we can deceive ourselves about. See, none of us is fully self-aware. That's why there's a second command here in verse 16. Look at the command in your Bible in verse 16. The command is do not be deceived. And that command exists because, wait for it, this is profound. We can be deceived. <laughs> and the harsh reality of this context is that we can deceive ourselves into justifying our sin. When we blame God for our temptation instead of ourselves, it's an attempt to let ourselves off the hook. But it's foolishness because it's self-deception. And the Bible says, avoid that. So that begs the question, how do we avoid self-deception? And the answer is not going to surprise most of you. But the way that we minimize self-deception in our lives is to spend time in God's word. It is the source of truth in our life. And the more consistent I am in studying the word of God, the more I'm going to understand rightly who God is. And the more I understand the rightly who God is, the more I'm going to understand accurately who I am. Friends, we cannot rightly know who we are apart from knowing who God is. So to help make the connection to the issue of temptation that James is talking about here, our time in the word cultivates godly desires. That's what it does. Look, we know Jesus has won the ultimate victory over sin on behalf of people like us. But as Christians, we still live in a daily battle, do we not? Brothers and sisters, the victory over sin in our personal lives is the result of a greater desire, the one of loving Christ, that greater desire overtaking selfish desires of the flesh. We can't just turn off the desire to sin that is within us, but we can cultivate a greater desire and find satisfaction in loving Christ more than we love our sin. It's kind of like training your appetites. For most of my life, caffeine has been important. Can I get an amen? Yeah, that's what I thought. Having real coffee in the morning was a necessity for me for a long time. Until a couple of years ago, I went into the hospital for four days. And because of what was wrong with me, they took me off of everything, water only. So while I was in the hospital feeling miserable anyway, I got weaned off of caffeine. So by the time I was out, the side effects were almost over. And now the only caffeine that I have is the caffeine that's in a cup of decaf coffee that I may or may not have in the mornings. I don't crave it anymore. I don't even have to have the cup of decaf if I don't want to. But if I'm at a breakfast meeting and I order decaf coffee and my waiter or waitress accidentally refills my cup with the real thing, it's like, whoa, hello. How is that possible? My appetites have been trained differently now. I desire something different. 
And my desire for not having caffeine overtook my desire for having caffeine. See, in a similar way, if we're going to battle sin in our daily lives, we have to learn to love Jesus more than we love our sin. And my desire for the things of God must overtake my desire for sinful things. And we won't have a chance of experiencing that if we're not consistently in the word of God. Because that's where godly desires get cultivated, friends. That's why this second command is here, to not deceive ourselves. And if we heed the second warning and are obedient to it, it promotes spiritual growth in our life. It just does. Because it affirms the truth about who God is. James continues with the truth about who God is. That's verse 17. Look at it with me. In contrast to the lie of this morbid God who is tempting us into sin, look how God reveals himself in verse 17. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above. God is not the source of our temptation. He's the source of every good and perfect gift and that includes the trials that he sends into our lives to make us holy and more like Jesus. Every good, good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. That, that term is actually a, an ancient Jewish term that, that James is using to describe God is the one who created everything in the night sky, everything we can see and everything we can't see. The father of lights, he created it. So God, God is a perfect giver, he's a perfect creator, and in him, he goes on to say, there's what? No variation or shadow. Meaning God does not change. If you, if you look up into the heavens, one night you'll see a crescent moon, and then maybe a week later you'll see a half moon, and then maybe a week later you'll see a full moon. Sometimes you can look straight up and see Mars at, at high noon. Other times you can see Venus low on the horizon just before dawn. And if you've ever seen a time lapse of the night sky, it's like everything's constantly changing. But you know the one who created all of that never changes. He is constant. He is reliable. And the, and the key to responding to trials and resisting temptation is to trust in that unchanging God. That's the truth about who he is. But James also shares in the last verse the truth about what he's done. Verse 18 is the truth about what he's done. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth. I love this because James ends this explanation about temptation talking about salvation. Isn't that good? He, he's describing what God has done for sinners like us in salvation. And the salvation of any sinner comes about of his own will. That's the truth about what God has done. Brothers and sisters, God is not responsible for our temptation, and he's most certainly not responsible for our sin, but he is wholly responsible for our salvation. If God has saved you, that's not an accident. And it's not by your own doing either. 
Back when we were studying the book of Galatians, we saw that there too, the word of God gives credit for salvation to the giver of salvation, not to the recipient of salvation. James is saying the same thing here. He says he brought us forth. He's using the childbirth metaphor again. But this time he's not describing how temptation gives birth to sin. This time he's talking about being born again. Imagine that. The half-brother of Jesus, James, is echoing the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about being born again. And in that conversation, Jesus said, look, all of us are born physically once, but if you want to be born spiritually, it takes a second birth. You must be born again. And when a person is born again, the Holy Spirit awakens the dead heart of a sinner. And that sinner recognizes the bad news about themselves, that they are a sinner, deserving of death, judgment, and hell. But then also by the convicting work of the Spirit, they recognize their need for a Savior. As they hear the good news of what God has done for sinners through Christ, that, that Jesus came, friends, he came. And he, and he lived. Jesus faced temptations and never once gave in to them. Jesus faced trials in his life and perfectly obeyed his father. He lived the perfect life that we can't. He obeyed perfectly. He came, he lived, and he died. He voluntarily died on a brutal cross for sins that he didn't commit. He absorbed the wrath of God for the sin of those who will be saved. And then he rose. He rose from the grave. He overcame death so that all who turn from their sin and trust him by faith would be saved. Saved in the same resurrection power that brought him out of that tomb. And those he grants salvation to, we become a holy people. As James describes it, the first fruits of his creatures. The first fruits of all that's created. You know, back in those days during a harvest, the first fruits were the best. So now through Christ, God is making his redeemed people the pinnacle, the best of his new creation to come. So that means we are the first evidence of the new creation to come when Jesus returns the new heaven and the new earth. That's what God has done. That's who God is. And it would be wise for us to heed these warnings because when trials come in our life, temptation is sure to follow. 